Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, we have a uh, great one today, you know, for a change. <laughs> I'm going to be talking to Lawrence O'Donnell Jr., uh, Lawrence, of course, is the host of MSNBC's The Last Word, uh, the network's second highest rated program after Rachel Maddow's show. Uh, she delivers, Lawrence, a huge lead-in. And um, what what percentage of her audience do you lose? I, pro- I squander a minimum of 10%. Uh, on a good night, I lose 10%. On a... On an average night, I lose, I don't know, a little more than that. I don't know. And do you know when you lose them? I mean, she does this thing where she tosses off to you and you're on split screen. Mm-hmm. I imagine the Rachel aficionados stay for that. I, I would if I if I was a Rachel aficionado. Why would you leave? She's still talking. You know, yes. that's, and yeah, then, right. And then when the split screen goes to you... Well, then they leave. I would assume there's a cliff there. You know, you, we, I've never seen them, but you, we, you know, the way we got our ratings are in 15-minute blocks, mm-hmm. right? So I will see the hour divided into 15-minute blocks, right. and so I see what that first, basically, 15 minutes is, and that's always the highest. They do minute-by-minute ratings. Oh, and you, you have get to that. ask for them, and and it takes them a while to develop them. And they give them to you. Because I could see then, oh, the minute get, to minute, the second she says, you know, good night, like what happens? You yeah, know, I just, the minute it goes full screen to you, yeah, just I bang. would love yeah. to see that. Yeah. Would you, would you find that yeah, out we'll for me? Yeah, we'll find it. We'll find okay, it. Okay, at least we've got it's, a project it's, here. It's worth knowing. Well, anyway, uh, I, I, I think everyone enjoys that segment. It's called a tease, right? We're going to, like, so now we say we're going to talk about that. Well, I, you're the broadcaster. I would, I'm just, I would hang I'm just doing a listen, podcast I'd here. hang around to listen to that, because that sounds interesting. When you know? I did my radio show uh, for Air America, I did not know that you tease. <laughs> yeah. And by the time I figured it out, I just went, oh, Jesus. It was too late, I felt, to just sound like I know to do teases. So what I would do is this. I'd go, you won't believe <laughs> what we got for you coming back. Yeah. So I just made fun of the tease. Right, right. This is partly my problem because I'm, I'm a comedian. No, but it's a huge advantage to be able to make fun of those kinds of rituals within broadcasting. Cause you I, don't. I can't. I'm not, I can't because uh, for a bunch of reasons. I'm not funny enough. The, the audience okay, there's doesn't, that. doesn't get it. You know, and on cable news, if you're going to do something that's a joke, you must have a graphic that says this is a joke. At MSNBC, um, every show is the same show. It's a host, (laughs) (laughs) and then guests from the Southern District of New York, Mm -hmm. former prosecutor. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of those. But if you don't have a. you know, prosecutor from the Southern District of New York. You have one from the Eastern District. Yeah, I've. I think I might be the only one who's had one from the Northern District. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, We've I never had one from the Western District. That's yeah. Buffalo. We've never had one. You've. Ha- I think you had the Royal Flush once. You yeah, had, maybe I may have. Yeah, yeah. you had. Uh, I've tried to. Yeah. You know, yes. Uh, Former prosecutor from <laughs> the Southern District, Eastern District, Northern District. You know what? If District, I haven't, I I'm going to try to do that. That would be great. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, and I, especially at a certain phase of the Mueller report and the, uh, the impeachment investigation, uh, you would have those three lawyers on and uh, very, very brilliant lawyers. I will say that. All your guests are, are terrific, and uh, but 
you, you know, you would hear, I'd hear something like uh, the, the, the former prosecutor from the Southern District of New York say, like, I was very interested. I thought it was fascinating what Manafort's lawyer, how he pleaded or how he asked for this change in venue. And that tells me mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And you would say, that's fascinating. And it wasn't. Oh, it was to me. Because I grew up with lawyers, and so I, I mean, I see details in that stuff that absolutely does fascinate me. I can't guarantee anyone in the audience shares that feeling, but uh, the, all that stuff really, okay. really fair is enough. fascinating. Fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's, let's get into it then. Uh, the, the, you spent your time around lawyers, and, and one of those lawyers that you spent your time around was, was your dad. Yep. Lawrence O'Donnell Sr. Correct. And he started off as a Boston cop and uh, when I was a baby, I guess. And and, uh, and he was that, that kind of Boston Irish wise guy who's sitting there on the witness stand as a patrolman uh, listening to these lawyers asking questions. And he's thinking with all the arrogance that he had in him, I could do that. I could do that. And so... You know, it's really... A good thing that you didn't inherit any of No, no, exactly right. And so, um, and so, uh, you know, he, he, he was a high school graduate and barely a high school graduate. Terrible student. Did he grow up in Dorchester like you did? No, he grew up in even uh, harder turf of Roxbury and uh, Jamaica Plain. and Roxbury, uh, though. You know, all those used to be, when he was a kid, those were Irish neighborhoods, which by the time I was a kid had become black, black neighborhoods. neighborhoods yeah. And uh, and so I was growing up in Dorchester, which is the the largest of the uh, the the. I like that when you talk about Dorchester, you 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 can't talk about it. You you can't. You you just the largest. No, you can't. You okay, know. let's for the next few minutes, you you talk Dorchester, and I'll talk Minnesota. Uh, okay. Well, let me ask you this. <laughs> so your dad. Uh, <laughs> You know, he barely made it out of high school, according to you. And, uh, you know, and then he uh, is a cop. And I guess I would suppose there are a lot of uh, Boston cops uh, in in Dorchester. The Dorchester, the fathers were all like cops, fire, and, uh, you know, post office and... Uh carpenters plumbers you know that stuff and so yeah it was just all over the culture of, of, of where we were I mean that was that was what we were you know that 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 was the route that was available to us and so, so so okay so now he's a bad student yeah right in uh, in in high school and then he's a cop and he's seeing these uh, he's testifying right mm-hmm. you know and uh, he says uh, no I witnessed this guy doing this thing and uh, he and then he's the lawyer for the the perpetrator. The perp uh, is uh, is kind of dumb. He thinks, right? He thinks they all are, and so uh, so he he thinks he's smarter than all of them, including the judge. And so uh, so he gets into his head. He's going to go to college and law school nights, and everyone thinks he's crazy, and no one thinks he can do it. And my mother doesn't think he can do it, but my mother doesn't tell him that. My mother's the only one who doesn't say you can't do this. Everyone else says you can't do this. You're crazy. Okay, so you know my father becomes uh, a lawyer. And uh, and okay, he, we can drop the yeah. I think it's I think the audience you know will yeah have a better is, time yeah because yeah. we were thinking about yeah, our actions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know I did have to overcome that. I had to learn to speak American, which was wicked hot. I mean, wicked hot. I it's a great accent. No, but when I no <clears> see <throat> SNL made it a great accent. You got to understand before no 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 Ben Affleck. Yeah, but a movie doesn't hit the way SNL. SNL did it repeatedly. And so the problem with having that as- accent, certainly before Goodwill Hunting Matt Damon. and before SNL, was no and, one and knew what your accent was. They just thought you were stupid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Your mom gets him through uh, law school. Uh, that's not an accredited law school. No, right? that's right. <laughs> Suffolk, he went to Suffolk, uh, Suffolk Law School in Boston, which is now you know a, a, a very reputable place. But at the time, it was not. Suffolk College was not an accredited college, 
Suffolk Law School it was not an accredited law school. It's a commuter school on, in downtown Boston. And uh, he got through there, and then he took the bar exam a few times, uh, as he had to, and, you know, became a lawyer and became a great lawyer, became a really great lawyer. So, became, and, and, and part of that is he's really smart. Yeah. He has street smarts. Yeah. He, has, he knows people. And there, your first book, Deadly Force... Uh, which you wrote about a case that uh, he ha- handled as a lawyer where uh, Boston cops had, had killed, had shot and killed a uh, an African-American mm-hmm. young man. Yeah. Yeah. 25, and, 25 years old. And it was, uh, this was kind of the first book, I think, written about uh, something that is very, very present uh, on, on and on... Americans minds. Yeah, it was the first book, 1984, and it was the only book for decades, actually. No, the, the, there was zero interest and in And how long did it take you to write that book? It took me seven years to write that book, uh, mostly because I didn't know how to write. And, and, and the other half of it was there was an ongoing research, and the case was ongoing legally uh, in the courts. But, but that was the, the seven years in which people thought... You're not weren't going to amount to anything. Correct. It, it looks like on my resume that seven years looks like prison time because it's just a blank. Like there's nothing. You know. Actually, I was a substitute teacher and a pack and attendant in in Boston at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Th- this this is a case that your your dad was represented the. Uh, yeah, it was a civil rights case, uh, uh, and it was the kind of the first of its kind, and and he won. You know, he brought this case against his old police department, the Boston Police Department. Uh, and and he wanted it, and, and and it had never been done before. And he kind of set out a novel path that other lawyers have tried to follow, and many have successfully followed uh, since then. Uh, and it was an incredibly dramatic story, and it, and it and it just requires everything uh, you know that that my father's life included, right up to the moment where. James Bowden's widow walks into his office and tells the story of her husband being killed by the Boston police and asks if he will take the case. And he immediately uh, took the case. He he had the kind of experience to know what... It takes a former cop yeah. to do this. Yeah, and I'll give you one example from the trial, which was jury selection. Um, and this is about the kind of intelligence, the kind of smarts that he had, and it's the kind of stuff that, that doesn't show up on you know, the bar exam, and so he's not one of those guys who tested well academically. He's not book smart. What's so interesting is he you would say he wasn't book smart in, say, high school or college, right? But then when he becomes a lawyer, he actually does the work of studying the law books, and so when he gets in the courtroom, if you want to do law book mastery against law book mastery of the other side or the judge, he's going to beat them all. Like in jury selection on this trial... It, it's very, it was very difficult. You know, you, you actually have very few challenges against the jury. And so my brother Michael was... You're, his, you're given a, few, a number of challenges? Yeah, yeah it's a okay. fixed number in federal court, fixed oh. number. And mm-hmm. and so my brother Michael was his co-counsel uh, on the case, and I was sitting there in the front row of the courtroom as a kind of extra assistant because I had mastered all the evidence of the case because I was already writing a book about it. And one of the jurors reveals that... One of the prospective jurors? Prospective jurors, a woman, reveals that her husband is a police officer. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, the judge is going to get rid of her. A Boston police officer? A Revere police officer. Ah. The the town next door, uh, northern side of Boston, Revere. So uh, she's the wife of a Revere cop. A Revere police officer. And, And what do Revere cops think about Boston cops. Well, that's what was the turning point in this in this juror. Uh, get it? So I assume the judge is going to throw her off be, automatically. You won't have to use one of your challenges because she's married uh, to, to, a to a cop. The judge does not disqualify her on his own. So now we have to use a challenge. My father has to use one of his few challenges. And to my astonishment, and to my brother Michael's astonishment, he doesn't challenge her. He asks her a few questions. The other side asks her a few questions, and he does not challenge her. And she ends up on the jury, and and her husband is a Revere cop, the town right next door to Boston. And then they immediately go to a recess right after she's seated as a juror. And I jump out of my seat, and my brother Michael jumps out of my seat, and we close in on my old man like he's crazy. Like how, and it's how could you let her 
get on this jury. The wife of a cop. The wife of a cop. And he says, nobody, nobody hates Boston cops <laughs> more than Revere cops. And nobody knows how bad cops can be more than their wives do. And it dawns on both of us right away. He's completely right. And there's nobody else. There's nobody else practicing law in America at that time who would have let her on the jury. She was, as it turns out, she was with my father all the way through the case. She was one of the strongest, his, one of his strongest supporters in the jury room. The jury found, uh, you know, from my father's side of the case, obviously he won the case. And he won it easily with that jury. There were no... There were no holdouts. There was no strain with that jury, and she was with him all the way. And that that was years before this. This has really become uh, something that we pay. Yeah, and a it's great how, deal and it's how to. I started my professional life, as it were. It, now, because okay, I wrote so, that yeah, book. You wrote the you book, know? and it took you seven years. Yeah, it took seven years. Okay, yeah. let me. I, and you said, well, because I didn't know how to write. How long did it take you to write Playing With Fire, the Nixon book? So the, the second book, which comes, I don't know, 30 years later, <laughs> took <laughs> took less than a year. Okay, so you write this book, and now you're a writer, okay? Yes. And uh, then it's done. You're over. It gets turned into a TV movie, and that puts me in show business. In show business. Yeah. And so then I start... Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So I start hacking around. I joined the Writers Guild in the mid-1980s somewhere, and I start hacking around show business, trying to get, you know, deals. And I got a rewrite deal from Ray Stark on one of those movies that he's had in development for 15 years that he has eight scripts on, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I think I never met Ray Stark when I was working because he had a big company by then. Sure. A development executive gave me the project, and I I remember I'd never actually met him uh, in the whole process. So it was very. Did did the movie get made? Of course not. Of course course not. Like 99% of movie scripts that are paid for, it did not get made, and that's the part that the public doesn't know. Yeah, but you got paid. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, and you know, becomes a became a dues paying member of the Writers Guild and all that. And the Writers Guild then goes on strike in 1988. It lasted six months. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's when I ended up slipping into politics. Uh, Senator Moynihan in New York invited me into his reelection campaign. He kind of knew that I was in a union that was on strike and maybe I needed a paycheck or something. He took you know pity on me, uh, and I ended up, so I ended up in that campaign. And at that point. That was appropriate. That's correct. It was a correct perception of my situation. And so I, the pity part. The pity like, especially, yeah. yes. Uh, and I was glad someone pitied me in, in that situation. Yeah. And so it was completely accidental that I ended up in politics. I was not interested in it. Uh, I was interested in him as a character, a fascinating character. Not really. Yeah, no, gigantic <laughs> and fascinating character. And so what I felt I was doing was I was I felt like I was living... The Last Hurrah, which was this novel by Edwin O'Connor that became a movie. And the way that novel is written is it's written by the nephew of the mayor of a city that appears to be Boston, uh, who's running for re-election, this old-time politician, white-haired guy, uh, who's kind of legendary. And the the nephew who's writing that first-person account knows nothing about politics. He's kind of the tourist watching this campaign. So that's and that, you. That's me in the Moynihan 1988 re-election campaign. I contributed exactly nothing to the effort. Well, he didn't really need didn't anything. Need, well, all he needed, he got from his wife, Elizabeth Moynihan, who was the campaign manager. So you have the, the candidate and the campaign manager were the whole story, okay? And $3 million he spends maximum, you know, to get re-elected in uh, New York State with 67% of the vote, you know. And, uh, you know, campaigns in New York State now, they spend $50 million you sure. know, before they even get out of bed. And so uh, it, was, it, was, it was for me— uh, what, it, what was the margin? Oh, he, Moynihan won 67% of the vote, you know, mm-hmm. and the next time he won 68% of the vote. That was a typical Moynihan re-election. You know? Now, Moynihan, unbelievable public service career. Mm-hmm. Uh, ambassador to India, ambassador to India, ambassador to the United Nations. F- worked for four uh, presidents in a row, which means Democrat and Republican. Uh, President Kennedy, President Johnson, President Nixon, President Ford. In their cabinets uh, or sub cabinets, in the case of Kennedy, Assistant Secretary of Labor, and a world class scholar, which is why Harvard wanted him as a professor. He's the reason 
that I could get paid to write a book when I was in the Senate, right? Yes, because there was a time <laughs> when, and in the in the '90s, when they were kind of cracking down on outside income. It used to be that senators could give speeches for money, an unlimited amount, right? And then they limited that, so you can give speeches for money, but you can only keep twenty five thousand a year. Senators giving speeches for money is such a bad idea. You have to understand something. Every, virtually every governor in America can give speeches for money. You know, the kind of the kind of ethics and rules that surround senators do not surround the state governments at all. Jesse Ventura, he refereed a wrestling match for a shitload of money. While right? governor. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And they yeah. had action figures. Right. Uh, some company right. made Jesse Ventura action figures. Yeah. So there came a point in this closing down of what senators could do financially where there was actually this rule for the Senate, which is say that senators could not have any outside earned income. You know, because a lot of them were actually making money as lawyers on the outside also. You know, other ways yeah. of making money, right? And all, all of this was going in the right direction is a good idea. You can have no outside earned income. And so this outraged uh, Senator Moynihan because he had his he lived on his government salary and he lived on the, you know, maybe six thousand dollars a year that would come in in book royalties for all of these scholarly books that he wrote that were published by Oxford University Press over, you know, 40 year period. And this was going to this was going to say, you know, that you had that Senator Moynihan's book income is illegitimate and he should not have it because that somehow corrupts him. So he did. Uh, work to get book royalties exempted from this outside income uh, rule and succeeded. And so when you were a senator, you were able to have outside income on book royalties. And that's why Bernie is... That's why Bernie's now, quote, a millionaire, because he made a lot of money on a book. You know, he's kind of... He had to adjust to that. Yeah. <laughs> because, well, well, Chris, he, his... <laughs> His stump speech was always like, this country is controlled by the millionaires and the billion. And, and, and this cycle, he's had to go, and he's had a hard time doing this. He, he's going, this country is controlled by the, mi- the billionaires and the multi-billionaires. That's because politicians get their money from the mil- damn, the billionaires and multi-billionaires. <laughs> And we have to stop this system. We have to stop the system because everything now is controlled by the mil- <laughs> fuck the billionaires and multi-billionaires. And let's face it, soon it's going to be trillionaires because of inflation. You know, in 1961, Hollywood had a film called How to Marry a Millionaire. At that time, a hamburger cost 15 cents i paid 17 dollars for a hamburger at this hotel they put me up i didn't put myself up there i they put me up and that's over a hundred times what it was in 1961 so i don't i have like ten thousand dollars is what i'm saying but that's true uh you know this this millionaire label i i mean we you really i mean i i, I millionaire label i think should it should mean the person has an income per year of a million dollars or more. The idea of having assets of a million dollars now in a country where, you know, houses, middle-class houses on Staten Island are worth $800,000 and more is, is it's ridiculous, these, these labels. You know. I don't think it's important. I think people know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so, sorry for the, uh, for the tangent. Working for Moynihan... And you have a in the Senate an incredibly important job. Yeah, I thought you know I was only going to work in the reelection campaign, and then the senator invited me onto the Senate staff, and I had no idea what I could do there. And so I started off being housed in the, his New York City office and going down to Washington frequently. And then I, my involvement in Washington got deeper and deeper, and I eventually became 
abs- you know, full-time Washington staff. And then Senator Moynihan became a chairman for the first time. He became chairman of Environment and Public Works, and he asked me to run the committee, be the so-called staff director right. of the Environment very, and Public Works Very, very, very important. Hugely position. important. It's the, the staff directors are the most important staff positions in the in the Senate. Those are way bigger than just uh, senators, uh, chiefs of staff uh, in the office. And uh, sadly, the job doesn't exist anymore because they don't govern that way anymore. They basically don't govern, as you know, but they don't govern through committees anymore. So someone has my job, they have that business card, but they don't do anything. There's still some, but it's really, the place is broken, yeah, as, yeah, we, yeah. as we see. Okay, so you have this incredibly uh, important staff position, and then your Senate career ends, Yeah, and you don't go to K Street. No, so I, you know, when, I be- when I became the staff director of the Finance Committee, there's a tradition there where the former staff directors come and visit you. And there's a book, there's a little book in the staff director's desk that actually lists all of the previous staff directors. And they and I was fascinated. I knew, I'd, I'd heard of some of them. They were kind of legendary. And I was waiting for them to come because I, I was hoping they could teach me stuff. And they, some of them did teach me things about how the job should be done. The, even the ones who I thought were legendary, I would look at their tenure because I thought, oh, boy, he was, he was like staff director forever, wasn't he? And you look at it and go, he was staff director for a year and a half. You know, and this one was staff director for a year. They were almost all of them were staff director for a year. And the reason for that is the day you become staff director of the finance committee, you immediately become worth a million dollars down the street as a lobbyist immediately. And, you know, you've got kids at home and and you're thinking about this and you're making a government salary. And so they all feel the pull of that lobbyist job and it pulls them out. And so I'm one of the longest serving (laughs) staff directors because one thing I knew at the start was, well, I'm never going to be a lobbyist, you know, and I, and, and I, and so the, and which is, you know, really rare and possibly, you know, the only one who did that. And when I left, I just went back to my writing life and I, and I kind of reconnected into Hollywood. And not long after that, luckily, uh, NBC ordered episodes of the West Wing and Aaron Sorkin immediately asked me to become a writer, uh, on the staff of the West Wing. And that's, that was, you know, just a great, great, I'm not, I'm not, familiar with that show yeah but when we come back let's let's talk about west wing uh we have to take a break and we'll be right back with lawrence o'donnell jr the best way to learn a language immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day but if that's not in the cards this year you can still learn a language the second best way and that's with babble Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup (laughs) <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500 500. 
We're back, and and I'm with uh, Lawrence O'Donnell uh, Jr., the host of The Last Word on MSNBC, and it's not The Last Word anymore, is it? There are some words after after I say, I actually say, that is tonight's last word. Now. The, the, 11th, the 11th hour with Brian Williams is next. It's like, well, what, what words did you leave for Brian? Uh, we left an hour's worth, it turns yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, West Wing, West Wing. Uh, unbelievable, great show. Great show, obviously, and unbelievable cast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unbelievable writing staff. I think, I guess. Well, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> yeah, Aaron carried uh, the first four years of the writing, and then he left. And then the last three years of the writing, uh, you know, was a, a and Wells team. took over. John yeah. Wells, who was the executive producer of ER, the reason the West Wing exists is because of John Wells, because the network rejected it. When Aaron wrote the script, the network rejected it. They didn't want to make it. Uh, John Wells had the power because he was running ER to, in effect, a year later, force them to make the pilot by nego- by leveraging it against another pilot they wanted John to make, which he did make. Uh, and then John, you know, used his power to force it onto the air because it didn't test very well. You know, it was an odd-looking thing for the audiences they assembled to test it. Uh, and then it, <laughs> it soared, you know, in the ratings right away. I mean, when that... When that first ratings report came in on a Thursday after that Wednesday 9 p.m. premiere, you know, we were walking across the Warner Brothers lot and we knew our lives had just changed. It's odd that every once in a while uh, TV executives don't know that their head is up their asshole. Well, it, you know, we're all human and, and they sometimes are wrong about <laughs> what the audience will will actually like, you know? And so the, the audience really went with this. And by the way, to, to my personal surprise, because I, I remember by the time we had written five of them, uh, you know, we just had a read-through of the fifth one, right? And we're walking across the Warner Brothers lot, and I'm with Rick Cleveland, who's one of the first-year writers who ended up winning the writing Emmy with Aaron Sorkin in the first year. And I say to Rick, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, the audience has seen like four hours of this now. And I say, by now they realize, you know, none of, no episodes on the air yet, okay? I'm predicting the audience's mm-hmm. reaction to the work we've done so far. And I say, by now they realize nothing happens. By now they know there's no baby dying in the emergency room and no one's getting, you know, uh, the cops aren't chasing anybody. It's not a procedural. Anybody. Yeah, they've seen everything we know how to do. Which is true. I mean, the first four episodes of The West Wing, that has everything we know how to do. They're not going to keep watching this after this, right? And I was luckily completely wrong about that. As you've been it turns many out, It turns times. out I've been, there are moments when I've been wrong. I'm just, I just thought I'd bring you one of those You said Trump here. wouldn't run this time, uh, last uh, time. I said he wouldn't run last time. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But you had said that every I time. I was right every time before that. You were right yeah. every time <laughs> yeah. until you weren't right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, right. so, uh, and and when he assembles the staff, uh, you're the only guy with government experience. Yeah, so, and that's why I was grabbed immediately, because they, they knew there's like one guy in the Rush Guild who's actually, you know, worked in Washington and government, been in the Oval Office in real governing meetings and in the cabinet room and all that stuff, and... So it was, I had a massive advantage as a writer on that show. It was a great, and that was my first uh, television series writing. I, I've since done a, a bunch of other ones, but it was great that the first one uh, put me in the position of literally highest authority as a writer there in terms of the material we were working with. But but not... You know, you had consultants on the show uh you know, uh, D.D. Myers and uh, those people who presumably were supposed to do a little bit of that. Yeah. But they, they, well, they're yeah. not, they're not writers and they are, um, they're not there every day. It's the there every day part that's the most important thing. And in a 22 episode show, if you're in the writer's room every day, that's a very different kind of contribution than a consultant who comes in once a month or less and you're just for a couple of hours you're just trying to get ideas for right from right. Them, right and the challenge with consultants on any show including like the physicians on the hospital shows is 
The consultant has to have a writerly mind. The good consultant is the one who comes in with an idea about what works for your show because most writers don't know anything about medicine, right? So they don't even know the question to ask the consultant about the hospital show. They don't, they don't know what the question is. It's very hard to find people who who have lived the life you're writing about but also have lived it with a writerly eye and know what to look for. Okay, so you're doing West Wing, and uh, that's just a great period. It really is. It's a real high point. It's really great. And you leave it at one point to do Mr. Sterling. Yeah, so I do the first two years of West Wing. Then I leave to create my own show, which is also on NBC, which is with Josh Brolin starring as an appointed senator, uh, which is something when you're working on the Senate staff, you're always sitting around thinking about, if if so and so, you know something happened. Who would they appoint? Mm-hmm. And you kind of play this game in your head, you know. And I I'd play that game in my head, and then I got so to a senator it. Crooks. Yes, and the reason I say that is because when I was there, there was a you know there's a plane crash that suddenly changed everything, um, you know. And and so you, you, it kind of brings it to mind, you know, that that uh, that can happen. And and it's a very dramatic scenario, you know. And that was the Mr. S- Mr. Smith goes to Washington scenario. The original big Washington drama was a senator dies. Who do we appoint? It's just a great dramatic. And, and he's appointed, and it turns out he's really an independent. Yeah. And he gets there, and it's a divided Senate, and he uses his position, yeah, uh, very uh, uh, brilliantly in order to get. Uh, some power, and the the series failed. Yes, he does it. He does it. Uh, he's a brilliant senator for about twelve episodes, and um, and but we, that's we, the hardest you've ever worked. Hardest I've ever worked in my life. Okay, that that brings me to which is crazy that show running a a, a TV drama uh, is the hardest thing in the world. Shouldn't be. There should be things harder than that. I'm I'm sure being president. I think coal mining. You know, yeah. Well, that's a different yeah. different. It's commercial more, fishermen I've seen those shows those, those, those are, are those are yeah. dangerous jobs yeah, those are hard. Yeah. so uh okay you work really hard there yeah. unbelievably you're yeah. exhausted uh you don't and have... then I come back to the West Wing when when my show gets canceled John Wells asked me to come back to the West Wing which I do for the last three seasons and being you know like a, a basically a writing Staff instead of doing the job John Wells is doing, which is running the show, was like being in retirement. It was fantastic. You know, I only wrote one script the, uh, for the West Wing the first season I was back because I was so burnt out. And then by the last season, well, you're pitching stuff though. You're pitching. You're oh yeah, breaking yeah. No, stories but physically and... wrote the script myself. I, but yeah. yeah, I did a lot of story. I did yeah, a lot yeah. of story for a lot of episodes. Yeah, but I want to. I want to. I want to get past that because I I, I want to cover a lot of stuff here that that I haven't covered. Uh, so, and, which brings me to uh, last word. My sense in talking to you is that that is not hard. Oh, it's not hard. It's not, I'll put it this way. It's not as hard as running a TV show, running a TV drama. It's not as hard as running the staff of the Senate Finance Committee. Not at all as hard as that. Uh, not as hard as writing a book. So it's not it's not in the top rung rung of of degree of difficulty uh, of things I've done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy. And, and I think and you... it's also more mysterious because with all those other things, uh, ex- well, I mean, writing when you're when when you're on a TV series or writing scripts, you can't really say when your day begins and ends because it's kind of in your head when you're driving. It's kind of yeah, invades, but you've got a you've got a schedule. You, yeah. You're on TV at, t- at ten. Right. This thing invades your life all the time. I try to schedule my day to avoid contact with what I'm going to be dealing with professionally on the show at ten o'clock. Uh, Is that I, why you're on on the sh- while you're doing this? Uh, yeah, I'm doing this right now to avoid knowing, <laughs> to avoid knowing what's happening. Yeah, because I want to come crazy. to the information as late as possible. Because the later I come to that information, the the clearer it will be. So, you know, you can get Trump's tweet, 9.17 a.m., like a minute after it comes out, and go, oh, you know, what does this mean? Or you can look at Trump's 9.17 a.m. tweet at 4.30 p.m. Or at 9.17 p.m. And, and you'll know what it means. You, you, know, see? Because you see what every, I did there? The, the, yes, because the framing of, of <laughs> what's going on will be much clearer. You know, especially in this situation where we are constantly 
throwing away the show we thought we were going to do because the New York Times or the Washington Post or or and a, you're a really good at that. Yeah, a prosecutor has I, just revealed something new that throws our show off. I, it, I think you're sometimes at your best when you know Soleimani gets killed. Well, I, I like the I like the completely throw away the script show and just go live. You like like because. You don't have to write. I don't feel any responsibility at that point because I didn't write anything. It's like this is I, I'm not presenting you. This isn't my idea about what to present. We just got buried. But in you've a written something in case something didn't break. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We I've got a whole show written and I feel responsible and you, for that. You, you and write I, your opening, right? Yeah, I, and I, yeah, and I can personally be embarrassed for how good it isn't. But if if it's just a totally breaking news thing with no scripts, then I have nothing to be embarrassed. Are about. you embarrassed? that your openings are not as well researched as Rachel's. <laughs> they are... Uh, I mean, they're not in yes. the same yeah, no, universe. They're no, they're not. No. She works incredibly hard. She does. And so... And you, you don't. I don't work <laughs> as hard as Rachel. And I can tell you that there's nobody in the television news business who works as hard as Rachel, and I don't believe there ever has been anyone in the television news business who works as hard as Rachel. And you can see it uh, in that hour. I do think, and I, by the way, I personally search the world for excuses for laziness, so I really, I really love them and I'm a collector of them. I would say, just in programming terms, when you're coming after a show where the opening has been a 25-minute kind of brilliant tour of one person on a TV screen telling you this story. Starting um, with something that has nothing to do right? or uh, very tangentially um, tied to yeah. what she wants I mean, to say. Rhythmically, you probably don't want to do that. Do that uh, again. To start off the 10 o'clock That's hour. That's a great... Right? Fucking excuse. It is a great excuse. Wow. No, I'm a collector of, of excuses for laziness. Uh, no, they're, but they're... but that means you're loose. That means you're happy. But look, at I've done... You would not be happy if you worked as hard as Rachel. <laughs> I, think <that's, laughs> I think that's a fair statement. Okay. Uh, but no, I, I, let, let's put it this way. I've worked as hard as Rachel in the past in other occupations. Yeah, yeah. Not in this. Yeah. Uh, and you're and older. You're, you're little, getting old. A little bit, yeah. Uh, but no, you know... Rachel's I, young. I have done 25-minute opening blocks. I have done 15 I know, I know. I've, I've done seen them. I, 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 you I, don't have to I do justify them. your existence. No, what I'm saying is I, I will still... I, I could do one tonight oh if my the situation God. called for it, you know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I, I ain't going to do it every night. There's no, no way. Okay, I want to I want to ask about MSNBC because... Uh, to me, now the hosts are different and take different uh, tacks in how they address things. But to me, it's all the same show. Mm -hmm. It's the host, it's the three lawyers <laughs> from, you know, uh, the Southern District, the Eastern District, and the Northern District of New York, uh, the former prosecutors. And you don't go, like, what are you guys doing? Well, of course, we're doing the news of the day and the big thing that happened today. And you are too. And there are people who watch the whole thing. They watch from, I don't know, Chris Hayes on or from... There's plenty of people Hart who, who tell me they watch four hours starting with Chris Hayes through to Brian. How do they do that? <laughs> I, I've, I ne I've never done it, so I don't know. Wow. But, but you know... Um, you know that that I, I have no argument with any audience perception of television because uh, it's because everybody in the audience has a, has their own perception of it. I can't say that's an incorrect perception of it. And so, your that that view, that kind of view of you know they're all the same show, is exactly precisely where I arrived somewhere around age twenty six about football games. It's all the same game, and I never watched another football game, never. And I played football in high school. I cared about it, all that stuff. There came a moment where I just went, 
I've seen every single thing they're ever going to do. I don't care. I never watch. Oh, it. I'll watch. It's I'll, I'll live. I'll, it's I'll live athletics. Guys, are I don't care. Just unbelievable. Oh, stop it! It's all happened before. There's nothing. It's happened before. Oh, don't tell me that the ball tipped off of his fingers onto that guy's helmet and then the other guy caught it. I know it's happened before. Every single thing that's ever going to happen in a football game has happened before. I don't care no, about no, any that's, of it. First don't of all, care that's about not any. true. It's the same show. The Minnesota Every foot, any of every NFL okay, game is the same show. Let's not argue about that. <laughs> I won that argument, right? There's no question. Okay, I'll give you that one because <laughs> you're wrong, but everybody knows it. Um... <laughs> So I want to ask you about cable news because you've got CNN, which is sort of we're playing it down the middle, except we hate Trump. No, they don't. One third of the people on their payroll love Trump. So you're guaranteed on any hour of CNN to minimum one third of the programming will be supportive of Trump. Someone on their payroll saying here's why Trump's right. Yeah, well, they bring someone on to yeah. do that, but they, they used their to have hosts a, don't they, do that. Their hosts don't, but they're but you know that's why that's one of the reasons why Trump kind of wants you to watch CNN instead of MSNBC sure. because he knows on MSNBC there will be no one defending him because we don't bring on liars. I don't bring on a liar. I won't do that. And there's no one on CNN who are defend- you saying that to defend Trump you have to lie? Yes, absolutely. of course, of course, absolutely, of course. Do. Yes. How else do you defend a liar? A pathological liar who lies about everything. You have to lie. So CNN has people on the payroll who they pay to tell their lies to the CNN audience in the middle of, you know, a CNN hour for some number of minutes. And so Trump knows <laughs> that if you if you watch CNN, at least you'll hear someone lying in my favor. So that's one of the reasons why he attacks CNN. Which brings us to Fox. Yeah. It's gotten worse? Yeah, it's gotten way worse. Way, way, way worse. Yeah, just like the Republican Party in the Senate and the in the House have gotten way, way worse, and they get worse every year of Trump. Mitch McConnell. Wow, I knew Mitch McConnell when he was an honorable guy in the 1990s. Holy crap! He was the chairman, the Republican chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee, and he he recommended the expulsion of the Republican chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. I mean, and and the the, the was Republican, that Packwood? Well, Packwood and the and the and oh, the senator yeah. resigned instead of getting expelled. I mean, I mean, Mitch McConnell just played it right down the middle in the most honorable possible way when he was chairman of the Ethics okay, Committee. Okay, well, I then that would be what I, what I 180 see degrees. Yeah, it's stunning. It's stunning. Um, you know, uh, even before Obama is sworn in, after he's elected, he tells um, his caucus, we're just going to stop him from anything. Well, the big problem is he said it publicly. But at that time, the economy is tanking. It's the worst economy since the Great Depression, mm-hmm. you'd think. Yes, you would. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. You'd think, you know what? Let's yeah. try to I mean, help. You, you would, you, you, yeah, I guess what you would, what they would have, the older version of that, spiritually, they might. in the older version of that, I don't think they even would have said it out loud. But what they would have said is, look, we all understand we're going to have to do something about this economic situation. We're going to have to do something. I don't know if we're going to be able to find a way to compromise with Democrats about this, but we got to work toward trying to see if we can, see if there's something reasonable. After that, we're just going to kill them on everything. Like, that would have been the older school version of it. But that's not what happened. No. no. Finally, they got three. Yeah. They got uh, Snow and Collins and uh, a Specter, who then later became a Democrat. And the reason they needed three was that so none of them could be the vote that did it. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, but it's a a very watered-down stimulus package. And then they're blaming blaming him for Mm -hmm. the unemployment rates and and lying about all kinds of shit. And then it's on and on and on. And, but uh, Merrick Garland is the piece that it resists on. That's the moment when you knew for certain that it was hopeless. That it's hopeless, you know. That it's absolutely and he hopeless. keeps he keeps there is nothing the Republican Senate will ever do that in any way is rational and and is any kind of compromise with Democrats. And he keeps quoting the Biden rule, which came from a part of a speech, mm-hmm. and in later in the speech, he says. 
Now, if you consult with us or pick a moderate, I'll gladly get behind that. And that's exactly who Merrick Garland was. So, and now, a few months ago, he's asked, uh, what would you do if a vacancy came up next year? And he said, we'll fill it. Right. McConnell, yeah. And, And that, to me... And he laughed when he said it because he's he's laughing at what did you believe me the first time? Okay, so well, you're the progressive station, fair to say? Yeah, I'll take that. Okay, I I believe that what I do in my hour, what Rachel does, what Chris Hayes does is we we discuss everything in a completely honest way, and that sounds partisan. It sound in in today's era because. Uh, the Republican Party uh, is just nonstop lying. But let me ask you something. Democrats have a hearing in judiciary, mm-hmm. and they don't do a good job. They never do. That's the truth of it. I mean, they were not, you know, you know these But people. you don't say that. Oh, I've said it. I've said it different times, sure. Yeah. But you don't say so-and-so was bad. It's not, I, I don't think, sty- I, I don't think, this sort of stylistic reporting of what went on in the hearing, that actually has never really interested me. What has always interested me about hearings having that worked That always in, interested me as... As a viewer. No, as a, as a member of the yeah. committee. Yeah. Because I was disappointed in some of the judiciary hearings mm-hmm. um, on Kavanaugh, on, on Bill Barr. That was yeah. a real opportunity. And... You know, I had a performing background right. and knew how to create a moment, and I felt, I feel like my former colleagues don't. No, and they don't have performing backgrounds, and so, of course, they're, they're not going to be able to deliver this the way, you know, television critics want them to, and, and my experience in hearings and training it's in It's not hearings, television critics so much. It's about creating a moment that gets on TV. Right. Yeah, that's they, what they, it is. They don't know how to do that. But that's, not, per, that's performing. You have to have that. Ta- that normally, that takes writing. You, you're both a writer and a performer. Okay, so you need senators who have staffers who think that way and know how to think that way, and they don't generally. You then need senators who know how to deliver it, and they don't generally. Even if you laid it out for them, this is exactly how to perform this. They wouldn't know how to perform it. And then it's interactive. And the way you plan to do this might not work with this particular witness. No, you have to listen to the witness all the time. You have to listen because they... Well, now you're talking about improvising, which yeah. which just about no one can do. But there are tells. Like with Gorsuch, uh, I had not planned to do the frozen trucker, mm-hmm. and uh, but Dick Durbin laid it out, and I could see that Gorsuch was very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so I tell my... You know, Judiciary Council, I say, we got some time. Research, you know, tell me about this. And he, I I just could see he was uncomfortable, and I went right at him. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, my my experience in hearings is sitting there behind senators and seeing that every single word, every word that Lloyd Benson is going to say in this hearing, including every question... Is written and he doesn't deviate for it, uh, deviate from it, and he's not the only one. That's true of most of them, and so hearings are always going to be disappointing uh, at a performative level uh, because of the people who we have in these jobs. And nobody runs for these jobs saying, "I'm going to be the best cross examiner you've ever seen," uh, and they're not. And and so I I go in with an extremely low expectation for that, and I believe my job on hearings is to say, "Here's what's important." of what was said in that hearing. Here is the important point that was made in that hearing. I don't care, you know, whether the, you know, this senator on the, or House member on the way to making that point stumbled over the words and had to read it and, and it looked terrible. I care what the No, what I'm saying is moments get on TV. Yeah. And if you can get Bill Barr... You know, he said that the Mueller report, when he introduced it, he he just lied, 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 yeah. lied, lied. Right. And that, CNN fell for every one of those lies, 100%. If you ever looked at the coverage of CNN the night uh, Bill Barr 
uh, released his little note, uh, you know, about the report. It, it was well. There was horrendous. a note, and then there was a press conference before, yeah. which was just hideous. Okay, we got five minutes. Okay, um, what should we talk about? Oh, kind. Yes, we should talk about the kind fund, which is the thing that really uh, keeps me very happily doing my job. Is been, is using this show as a forum to be able to do something uh, beyond the show, and so. Uh, we created Kids in Need of Desks, which is this program I created in, in Malawi where we've now Why got, Malawi? Because it was totally accidental. A friend of mine had just returned from Malawi. She's a school teacher. She said to me, you know, they need desks. They don't have any desks. That's what all the teachers ask for. And I said, well, wait. I mean, couldn't we do something about that? And I didn't even know why I said those words. And then I found myself going over there and trying to figure out how to do it. I eventually found a guy in the capital city who knew how to make desks. And in one week, he made 30 of them for me to deliver to one classroom the first time I was there, just paid him with cash out of my pocket. And then when I came back, um, I I started talking about it on the show. And I knew when I talked about it publicly, I'm going to need a way for people to respond the way I did uh, to this need. And so I partnered with UNICEF so they could process credit cards and all that kind of stuff. And UNICEF has fantastic uh, infrastructure in Malawi. And so uh, we started doing it. And, And this, you know, we've now raised about 25 million dollars in the how nine. many deaths have you provided uh almost a quarter of a million at this point and there will be since we just raised three million dollars this holiday season which is gigantic for us um that's going to be so it's a building lot more. it yeah. seems to be building yeah it, it, well you know what's great about this year is i talked about it less on the show this year than ever and the yes. contributions were more because people have made it a habit already mm-hmm. and when we, so we put desks in schools and we provide scholarships for girls to attend because girls in um a lot of countries they send their sons to right. school and not the girl. Yeah, they so can't afford no, it. They there, have to there, pay. Yeah, there's no free public high school in, in countries like Malawi, and so you have to pay a little bit of tuition, and most families are going to spend that tuition if they have it on a boy instead of a girl. And so the girl's graduation rate is like half the boy's rate, and so we're trying to push that up. And that's been fantastic because I met a lot of these girls, and now some of our girls are in college, which is just a dream come true. It's just phenomenal. And it, and it's just, uh, I, I think, a very important thing to do with the kind of TV real estate that I have. Um, if, if this run of this show came to an end and I hadn't done something like that, I, I, don't, I just can't imagine how I would feel about looking back on that. What lot. about helping Americans, Lawrence? You get that all the time, and, and anyone who wants to do that is free to do you know, I get it. If you think I'd rather... You only had one shot at this to do something to help kids, and you'd think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of American kids who need help, Lawrence. I, I have no debate point on that. I've chosen to do what I'm doing. Well... Okay, some of us care about America. And I think on that note, no, it's a great thing. Yeah. It's a great thing. No, and, and I it, kid. And it makes you, you know, I have, a, I have, I have one of these desks uh, in, in my office because it's there to remind me, you know, on the days where I think, why am I still doing this? Well, that's why we're still doing it, you know, because we, 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 at minimum, you got to keep doing this because we need more desks. Well, we'll link to it. How's that? Oh, great. That'd be great. On our, Thank you for uh, on, on this. And um, keep up the good work. Okay, everybody, we, uh, we got to go. Lawrence, uh, I didn't get to everything I wanted to. That, that's how fascinating you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, everybody, uh, give to the uh, kids in need of desks. Uh, we'll, we'll provide a link to it. Lastworddesks.msnbc.com. There you go. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.